Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I have with me Brittany Spanos, Rob Sheffield, Andy Green, and the topic at hand today is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which has revealed its 2021 inductees, and I believe it is uh, the biggest or one of the biggest classes ever. Really interesting class. So in the uh, performer category, and in the end, these distinctions are without a difference because they're in the Hall of Fame. But in the performer category, Tina Turner. I think we can take credit with our episode the other day. I pushed her over the top. Carol King, The Go-Go's, Jay-Z, Foo Fighters, and Todd Rundgren. In the early influence category, Kraftwerk, Charlie Patton, and Gil Scott Heron. That's quite a group. And the Musical Excellence Award, LL Cool J, Billy Preston, Randy Rhodes, and the Ahmet Erdogan Award is for Clarence Avant. And interesting class. Andy Green, it is an unusually big class. Uh, it seems like they're changing the way they do this. Yeah, it's a very big class. I think back to 1987 when they brought in like 20 people or something because they were already thinking about the future. I think with this one, it's sort of a make good year that there's a lot of long standing mistakes that they've made in the past. They're trying to fix a bunch of them at once. And a big one is just Carol King and Tina Turner that they're both in, but they're in as part of their former partnerships. And for Carol, it's as a non-performer. So this is something that they should have fixed years ago, but they're fixing it now. Well, I think Eric Clapton's in six or seven times. So three. Good. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But good to good to get some other people in more than ones who deserve to be Tina and Carol. Let's talk about Jay-Z. This is his first year of eligibility, right? Yes. It's obviously incredibly well-deserved. How does he jump the hurdle that so many other people at El Cool J took years and they had to put him in through this uh, little bit of a side process. How do we think Jay-Z got this extremely well-deserved entry into the Hall of Fame? Is it just because he's Jay-Z? I think that's, what, that's my theory. Because this comes down to about 1,200 voters. And a bunch of them, they may not be super educated about hip-hop's history. But they know Jay-Z because he's incredibly famous and has been successful recently. But a lot of people, they might know L Cool J for a few songs and his TV work, but some people, sadly, they don't know about his huge contributions to the history of the genre. And it's sort of sad, but it's a little tough for a lot of these old school guys to get recognition these days. It could also be noted that LL Cool J, part of his huge originality and innovation was he was the first big rapper with a largely female audience. And it's a long-standing Hall of Fame tradition that there's, a, bias is a strong word, but music with a female audience goes to the back of the line. So the fact that Public Enemy got in, no questions asked, and their first ballot, their first year of eligibility, and LL Cool J has been put on the back burner 
you know, six times when Public Enemy's best song has a shout out to how great LL is. It's a longstanding thing in LL's career that he's taken for granted as, as a great artist because of his female audience. As Cannabis once said, 99% of your fans wear high heels. And I think that's why LL has been just weirdly left off. Right. It must be noted, of course, that LL shot back 99% of your fans don't exist. Uh, I love it, yes. Which I think says that that, that's all the rock and roll attitude you need for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And uh, a great wrong has been righted here. Let's actually pause and hear from LL Cool J in conversation with Andy Graham. I hear very ignorant people at times say that they don't think hip-hop belongs in the Hall of Fame, which to me is so stupid. But how do you respond to people that think like that? I don't. (laughs) (laughs) nice (laughs) yeah I think I I think that says it all it's all part of the family tree of rock it's one giant branch on it I I always think you know look I knew little Rick right Mm -hmm. me and him were were friends I knew little Rick Uh, you can't tell me that I don't I shouldn't be standing next to little Rick of course I'm a direct descendant of everything that little Rick did so to say that I don't belong is is, is ludicrous. Yeah. But yeah. this is a guy who, you know, would, would sit there and put his arm around me and say, yo, you guys are um, continuing to, to push the torch forward. You're carrying the torch. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And I sat with Lil' Rich and had those conversations. So, you know, you know, don't let's not act like I'm not a direct descendant of the Little Richards and the Chuck Berries of the world. Of course. It, it's, an, it's an outgrowth so, so, of all that. Yeah. Of course. So, so the people that are kind of doing that they're being slightly dishonest about where rock and roll comes from oh yeah absolutely you know what i mean yeah of course you know? and yeah, it, it, it might be hard to draw a line for me to some people but when you get to the roots of it i'm the fruit of that root you know yeah I mean? and now you're in the same club as bob dylan and the beatles and the stones i mean it's pretty amazing exactly 100 yeah so in the past they brought in Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, and I run DMC, Big E, the Beastie Boys, Public Enemy, NWA, and Tupac. So what other key pioneers do you, you think they're missing? Oh, man, so many, so many. I mean, you know, you got the Eric B. and Rakims. You got the, um, I mean, there's so many, man. I mean, there's just so many great artists. Mm-hmm. You know, the Big Daddy Kane. These guys, like, really moved the world. They moved the planet. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. the world changed. You know, when they when they appear on the scene, they deserve it. They're great. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. These are great artists. These are a, a ma- people that have mastered their craft. It, you know, it's a different craft, but it's mastery nonetheless. You know, to to be able to do poetic prose, set the music, and move the masters is not easy. Rob, you have a gift for making connections among disparate musical artists. It is among your gifts. Can you take... This group of people, this whole class, and find some connections between them. Wow. Well, first answer, yes. Um, they're all old. They're all brilliant. They all deserve it. This was a Hall of Fame ballot where every single name on the ballot should be in the Hall of Fame and will be in the Hall of Fame. It's a matter of time. These are all unusually long careers. I mean, I voted for the New York Dolls because I'm just, you know, that guy who's going to vote for the New York Dolls. They made two albums and they were darn lucky to stay together and on their feet and wide awake long enough to make two albums. The first one of which was produced by Todd Rundgren. But these are for the most part people with like super long and innovative, but also long running careers, you know, like Carole King, who was writing great songs before some people in the Hall of Fame were even born. 
Brittany, do you want to talk about some of the inductees you're most excited about this year? Yeah, I'm, of course, uh, we, we spent an entire episode talking about her, but Tina Turner, I'm super thrilled that, I mean, it was kind of one of those things where it took too long for this to happen. So I'm glad to see her. I'm glad to see Carol. I didn't realize that she wasn't in on her own until we had gotten the the ballots to vote, but I'm so happy to see her and the Go-Go's, of course. I think what's really cool about and also kind of relates to a lot of what we've talked about in the podcast in past episodes is like kind of that canonization and kind of keeping the legacy of certain acts alive. And I think that's something that you see with Jay-Z, what we've seen with the Go-Go's with the documentary. I think that allowed a whole new audience, a, a younger audience, or maybe even an audience who just wasn't thinking about them in that way and their legacy were able to kind of dig into their history a little bit more. I think Foo Fighters are really good at that as well. And Jay-Z is someone, yeah, who's like very good at kind of canonizing himself amongst the greats and amongst sort of his, canonizing his legacy in that way to keep it where he's still relevant, but also is seen as an icon and is seen in that way. So I think that's something that we're, we're kind of seeing with a lot of these artists that got inducted this year. Absolutely. Let's dig into the Go-Go's specifically. Rob, what's great about the Go-Go's? Everything. I'll tell you what's great about the Go-Go's. Jane, Gina, Belinda, Kathy, and Charlotte. They were uh, absolutely like the greatest in terms of an American band in the old school sense of a self-contained band with so many great songwriters in the band. You could always tell a Jane song from a Charlotte song from a Kathy song. And the fact that they were a self-contained band and weren't doing the kind of cliches that were almost universal among U.S. bands that were getting on the radio at the time. And so they were uh, an unbelievably great and innovative and influential band that were almost universally loved and acclaimed in their time. So it's always been super weird that they're not in the Hall of Fame. And, and I, I hate to take this tactic when you know someone gets in and it's a celebration. But a few years ago, when Green Day got in and it was like Green Day are in and the Go-Go's aren't, you know, like Green Day would have been the first to say that the Go-Go's were something that they were you know, taking their main cue from. But in terms of their originality and they're coming out as a punk band playing pop music that wasn't just theoretically pop you know it wasn't just like pop songs played like really aggressively and noisily but they were actually making popular pop music from a punk rock background it was completely original this year's class there are two different acts going in that have former members of the germs Foo Fighters and the Go-Go's like imagine going back in time to my teen self and, <laughs> and thinking that you know Darby Crash Two of his bandmates were going in the Hall of Fame in two separate bands. Yeah, Andy, you spoke to, we're going to hear your audio with the Go-Go's in a second, but they pointed out that connection. Yeah, and they were super psyched about this. I mean, I spoke to them at 8.05, the very minute that this went public, like to the second, and they were just ecstatic. It, It was really great to hear their joy. Yeah, I love that you Zoomed with the Go-Go's. That's a very unique <laughs> distinction. Yes. <laughs> so let's hear Andy Green with the Go-Go's. Well, we knew that, you know, for whatever reason, we weren't like one of the popular kids in class when it came to this whole Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing for a long time. So I had just sort of, I just didn't think about it ever because I thought, well, for whatever reason, they don't like us and they never will. And then everything shifted. And then there became this possibility that it might happen. And I was pretty afraid to be hopeful because I, I don't like to get my hopes dashed. And um, so 
when we found out it actually happened, I was dumbstruck. Yeah, because it, I don't know. I was afraid to hope. I really was. And then it happened. And just it's it's hard to express how exciting it is to be included in the cool kids or whatever. It's it's amazing. Yeah. And this year's class is really special. It is like Tina Turner and oh. Carol King and Todd Rundgren and the Foo Fighters and Jay-Z. I mean, are you able to imagine a big all-star jam of all you guys playing together at the very wow. end? Yeah. It's definitely in a cool class. That's for sure. I was thinking of that earlier about, you know, the class of 2021 is a pretty cool place to be. <laughs> so that was Andy Green Zooming with the Go-Go's. I just like saying that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast. Part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. So let's touch on Carol King. It's interesting that and wrong that she was not in as a performer, as Brittany pointed out. Is it the same kind of prejudice? In, is it the, the LL Cool J type prejudice? Is it, in fact, sexism that because she was as an artist that her audience was so overwhelmingly female and she herself is so overwhelmingly female. Is that what's behind this, Rob? Honestly, I think it's just sort of a historical. I mean, she's been in the hall of fame for over 30 years. She was one of the first people going in and one of the first hall of fame inaugural classes. The first five years, she and Tina both are in ever since then. And, but I think partly because of the, it's, it's been a publicity thing for the hall of fame in recent years to say like, how did these artists who have been in for, you know, for 30 years, how have they never been in the Hall of Fame before? And I think that's just a branding thing. I think next year they're going to do the same thing with Jimi Hendrix. You know, how is Jimi Hendrix not in the Hall of Fame? He was just inducted with the experience. So Jimi Hendrix is not in the Hall of Fame as a solo artist. Neither is Sly Stone. Neither is Tom Petty. He was inducted with the Heartbreakers. So I think next year they're, they're going to, you know, do the same Carol and Tina treatment to Tom Petty and Sly Stone. I think Andy does see a distinction there, do you? What, with Sly Stone and no, yeah, yeah, what were you going to say? I was going to say that I think for a long time, the Hall of Fame didn't care about public criticism. That there were years and years and years where they would do stuff, and they would get shit on by everybody, and they didn't seem to care. The past few years, I think especially in the John Sykes era, which is very recent, so just a second class, they're more thinking about checking boxes and so even though there was no medal in this year, they brought in Randy Rhodes. I think they're really trying to do a lot of things to appease various groups and not get super criticized. I'm not saying that Carol King, she doesn't deserve it. She deserved it years ago. But I think they're giving more thought to what's right and wrong. 
Yeah, and I, I guess I would, I, my rejoinder to Rabo makes a good point is that if Ringo can be in as, as a solo artist, then Carol King can be in as a solo <laughs> artist. I think, despite our love for Ringo, let's face it, I mean, come on. I mean, I, I, think, I think there was a lot of emphasis in making sure that each member of the Beatles was fetid to the maximum degree, and then maybe we can now move on. Having now made sure that each member of the Beatles and their various pets and everyone they've ever met has been <laughs> properly honored by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, we can now move on. And yes, if we have to honor people multiple times again, I, I'm all for that, honestly. Uh, honestly, it's- Carol and Tina are both individually very unique cases. And in their cases, I had no qualms at all about voting for them, even though they were in already. Tina is a special case in a hundred different ways. Carol is a special case in a hundred different ways. And I think there's nothing but joy about seeing them go in specifically for the phase of their careers as solo performers. Um, I mean, Tapestry is about as universally loved as an album can possibly be. It's really an, an exciting thing that she's going in as a performer, specifically as a record maker. Yeah, and it's the 50th anniversary of Tapestry this year. And I think also just in the last several years, there's been so much more discussion of Carol King as a performer, as a, a solo artist. I think her, her songwriting, of course, is... I mean, the impact it's had on pop music for her as a songwriter for other artists is just immeasurable. Like it's, she's written some of the greatest pop songs of all time, but also Tapestry, the influence that that album in particular has had on every singer songwriter since is incredible. And we had the the Broadway musical a few years ago. And I think for a lot of people that was kind of this shining light on her story and on who she is as a person as more than just a, a name in the credits of some of the greatest songs of all time. And to kind of see her impact continuously and seeing the impact of her career as a performer continuously on the youngest of singer songwriters now is hard to ignore. And it's kind of one of those things where she's only gotten more impactful and I think is coming up on a a very Joni Mitchell blue type of renaissance with tapestry. We're going to probably see that in the next few years where it's, um, I think it's already starting to come very hand in hand for a lot of singer songwriters, but I think we're going to see that becoming like a a bigger deal for, for younger audiences in in the next few years. Yeah. That's such a great, great, great point. Her influence on Olivia Rodrigo, perfect example, you know, like totally following the Carol King template. It's a beautiful thing to see. Yeah. But let's take a minute and play a little bit of Andy Green's conversation with Carol King, right as she learned that she was being inducted into the Rock and Roll of Fame as a solo performer. I was surprised, I think, because there were so many worthy nominees. It's like I looked over the list and I was like, well, I'm already in as a songwriter. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's not, I'll be okay if I'm not in. You know, there's so many other good people they should get in. Right. And and here I am. And apparently there is some kind of milestone that I was trying to figure out. I I haven't quite got it yet, but I may be the first, you can verify this, I may be the first woman to be inducted both as a songwriter and a performing artist. Yeah, I I believe that's true. And you're one of very few people to be in twice. And for women, it's just you and Stevie Nicks and now Tina Turner. So there's, there's only there's only three of you that have been in twice. Well, I am in great company, let me just say, yeah. with those women. That's, yeah. that's good company to be in. And, yeah, it's a great honor. It really yeah. is. It's great. And also, I want to make sure that I acknowledge my fans because I don't live 
in the world of my fans. In other words, I'm not out in the world. My life is usually not in my career, especially, you know, I'm doing less now. It's My career has been a part of my life. For many artists, it is their life, for better or for worse. And I've tried to keep that balance. Uh-huh. But when I do meet my fans, when I do, you know, read the socials and I do pay attention, it's remarkable how many people, my albums, my music, my performances have touched. And it's a lot to take in, which is why I don't live there all mm-hmm. the time. Sure. But for every person that has come up to me and told me their story, I really listen to it as though I'm hearing that story for the first time because I am hearing it for the first time from that person. And when you think of how many that persons there are, it's quite overwhelming and I'm really, really grateful to them. Wow. So back in 1990, you were inducted by Benny King as a songwriter. So was that a fun night? Do you have pleasant memories of that whole evening? Well, you know, I, (laughs) this is funny. I know it was a fun night, and I know it was joyous. I was inducted with my, well, he was no longer my husband then, but with my co-writer, Jerry Goffin. Uh-huh. And I remember that being a good night because he was recognized. It, it's very often that the lyricist, if the musical, you know, the composer is the performer, uh-huh. the lyricist gets less attention. Right. And particularly since I recorded a lot of the songs as an artist, um, I think now, after Jerry died in 2014, uh-huh. he got the recognition, got a lot of recognition. It was like it was asleep, and his death awakened everybody to how much they valued him. Uh-huh. But the night that we got the Songwriter Award, he did get the recognition, and that made me very happy. But do you think this means something different to you, that it's for you as a performer? Yes, because I never set out to be a performer. <laughs> I I was set out to be a songwriter, and that's all I ever wanted to be. And I was, I don't want to say pulled in. It, it was, as a songwriter, you sing your own songs in order to present them, right? Right. So I was a performer of my own songs, but for a very limited audience. And then James Taylor and then Lou Adler encouraged me into being a performer of those songs for a wider audience. I just had no idea how wide it would be. God, I cried so hard at that musical. I've never cried at a Broadway show like I cried at the Carol King musical. It was really great. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yes. I started, like, when the lights went down. She's playing I Feel the Earth Move, which isn't even a sad song. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I'm in trouble. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that's kind of the thing, like, back to what we were talking about LL and I feel like a lot of younger audiences aren't as familiar with LL's music we know him as a public figure like I think a lot of people know him as you know whether he's like hosting award shows or acting you know he's just like in he's in the culture but I think for a lot of people's music is not being as celebrated as it deserves to be and is not as you know having that same sort of impact or kind of that push to be relevant for younger audiences and I think that's kind of what you know, obviously the voters are a little bit on the older side for the Rock Hall, but it's definitely being impacted by what's speaking to people, what's speaking to, you know, the culture at large. And I think I would love to see that sort of renaissance for LL's music in the coming years, because, I, you know, he deserves to actually have an induction that's not just the Musical Excellence Award. I totally, I would love to, see, I don't even know if it's possible in the rules, but, you know, I would love to see. I don't think it is. I think it's basically just 
I think the good thing about the Musical Excellence Awards, and you can't see my air quotes, is just that it can be implemented when the powers that be at the Hall of Fame see a persistent injustice in the votes and see it's never going to work out, at least no time soon, and just kind of like break glass in case of emergency and push them in the Hall of Fame. And some people might say, you know, it's undemocratic, whatever. But I mean, this isn't a, a nation. It's an organization that's trying to do its best. And I'm, I'm all for it as long as it's used in this way. And, uh, you know, he's in. And for me, I think that was LL's attitude when Andy talked to him. As far as he's concerned, he's in. And as far as I'm concerned, he's in. And it is interesting, uh, to Bernie's point, that I love what LL's doing on SiriusXM. And this isn't a plug just because we're also on SiriusXM, but that he's sort of promulgating this classic hip-hop format, which the world has needed for so long. In, in L.A., there was a, at least there was, there may still be a terrestrial radio station with that format. It's such an obvious niche that needs to be filled, and I think it's a, a very worthy mission for him. It is weird, though, because Mama Said Knock You Out is in a million cartoons. It's sort of like if Stand By Me was good enough <laughs> to to get someone in the Hall of Fame just based on one song, and obviously LL has a whole catalog, but Mama Said Knock You Out is... Honestly, in my opinion, one of those songs that if Ella had done nothing else, he should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for that. But I, and, and and that's barely in the top ten best songs on that album. It's yes, just like I, perfect album. That's one of those albums that's always a cassette. It doesn't exist in any other format. And I wore that cassette out. I mean, that <laughs> is, uh, you know, it's jingling, baby. That is just a, a superb uh, album. Be- are we going to get a chance for Ice-T to induct him? Because that would be the best, because they had the best hip-hop beef of all time. And to the break of dawn on that album, it's my favorite LL versus Ice song. But especially since they're both now playing cops on TV, which is 10 times of awesome, awesome <laughs> in itself. Rob, I'd love to hear you make the case for Jay-Z. In a way, it's the easiest thing in the world. But I'm just, I, I want to hear Jay-Z filtered through your ears for a second. Well, Jay-Z, is as he... Once said in a great song called Encore, he called himself Rap's Grateful Dead. And I love that, you know, and it's really true. Like, who else has a career that long? It's the kind of thing like we're, you know, even six or seven years into his career, like The Blueprint, I think, was his first huge comeback album. And everyone was like, how did he do this? How is it possible that Jay-Z, who's been doing it for five years, how is it possible that he's still, you know, so re- relevant and so great? And Jay-Z, he really expanded the idea of what people thought was possible for a hip hop career. And uh, you know, very much following the LL template, I think it's a, a great thing that LL and Jay-Z are going in together, but he completely expanded what was possible in terms of the, the art form. I, I think Questlove said it best, and, and this was you know something he said 20 years ago around the time that the blueprint came out, that Rakim's the father, Biggie's the son, Jay-Z's the Holy Ghost. So, can someone sort of make the case for Todd Rundgren? It's weird. We're already we're just on uh, Jim Steinman, and uh, Todd obviously produced Bad Out of Hell. Todd is, is one of those pop rock geniuses, madmen. I think it can be a little opaque uh, for people who aren't fans, but who wants to kind of just make the case for Todd Rundgren? Todd Rundgren, I mean, you couldn't make this career up. He's got so many pop hits that are sort of, you know, in a Philly soul kind of vein. Then he had like, you know, a 60s garage band that was, you know, on Nuggets, you know, like the Nas were fantastic. And just uh, the way he was always producing other people's records with really like kind of no continuity. It's completely nuts that he produced both XTC and the New York Dolls' most famous albums. That makes no sense. And as a great pop eccentric through the years. 
Yeah, I think a very unfortunate thing is he's been defined by like three or four hits from the early 70s that in no way speak to the depth of his catalog or his skills as a producer. You hear Hello, It's Me and Bang on a Drum or whatever. That's just 1% of 1% of what he's done. And it's what most people think of, which I think is something that's always worked against him. Well, Bang the Drum All Day, the persistence of that song is like if... uh the only song that people knew by The Who was Squeezebox, right? (laughs) Yeah, or like Chuck Berry and My Dingling or something. Yeah, and what's funny is Todd doesn't give a shit about the Hall of Fame. He has not done interviews about it. He's blasted it in the very recent past. I think it's possible that he doesn't even come. That is possible. By the way, I have to admit, I did not know until this second that Bang the Drum All Day didn't come out till 1983. Why was Classic Rock Radio obsessed with a song that came out as late as 1983? That's really bizarre. Uh, wow, that's one of those anomalous... I thought it was a 70s song until like five seconds ago because Classic Rock Radio didn't play songs from 1983 that much. That's so weird. Anyway, I'm just confessing my ignorance here, but I, I did not know that. When it became a, a televised sports-like thing, I think that was when it became the hit and the enduring classic that it's become i remember a great interview with todd once that he spent all his time watching nba games just because every time that they played a bit of bang the drum all day he was like another 600 bucks and he just watched sports on tv and count his money which is such an awesome todd rungren thing to say <laughs> maybe meatloaf will induct him is that true I'm, oh you don't I'm, know I'm, I'm i'm just throwing them brilliant ideas for free here <laughs> you're welcome john sykes <laughs> The act remaining in the performer category we haven't talked about is Foo Fighters. And, you know, I've been stepping back recently and just looking at that arc. It really is. It's one of those things where we just take for granted because we've been living it for two and a half decades now. But, and this is the most obvious point in the world, but Dave Grohl was the drummer in Nirvana. You know, he was the drummer in Nirvana. This awful thing happened. The band ended. And then for 25 years or more... He picked up the torch, turned out to be this great songwriter, and then basically carried the torch, became the mayor of rock and roll. And he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame based on that. It's it's extraordinary. Uh, It's just like an extraordinary story. You couldn't make it up. You couldn't have told people in the last days of Nirvana that this was going to happen. It would have been completely unimaginable. I spoke to him yesterday. He basically said the same thing, that he had no master plan. He didn't plan on becoming a stadium caliber act. He just made a little tape in six days by himself. It's this little throwaway thing, and it just kept growing in really bizarre ways. And now they're like one of the biggest rock bands on the planet. They play stadiums all over the place. They have all these beloved songs. It just, he kept saying, look, this just sort of happened. <laughs> It's really weird because somehow TikTok's algorithm has figured out that I like seeing these Nirvana clips. Like they, there's a bunch of kids, but there's a bunch of kids who are really in, like they're not wearing their Nirvana t-shirts for show. They're, they're really into Nirvana and they they keep finding little Nirvana live clips or little interview clips and posting them on TikTok. And it's just every time I see Dave, I don't know, it, it just really reminds you because there's something very vivid about TikTok because it, I think it's because it's the it, the vertical format makes it seem like you're seeing something in front of you happening like through your camera. And it's and it just, you know, he lived this whole experience of just being the guy in Nirvana and this happened. And, and there's there's one moment that actually I've seen on TikTok more than once where he's rehearsing with the Foo Fighters and he starts playing Nirvana songs like start on guitar. And then he's like, I have to stop. I'm getting too emotional because he can't really do it, apparently. He actually starts playing Smells Like Team Spirit. And he's like, he's like, we should open with this tonight. 
<laughs> There's something beautiful about the way he sort of unwillingly, or, or definitely like not on purpose, inherited the role of, of the last 90s rock star from the biggest era ever for rock bands. And that you have the sense that, that this role was kind of thrust on him just because everybody else kind of stopped or, or fell off, or they were just jerks. And Dave Grohl being the most famously uh, nice and kind and generous toward other artists kind of person, that he sort of became a, a sort of ambassador for 90s rock, the kind of much the way that LL has done for old school hip hop. And that, you know, because they're both so universally charming, universally beloved, and both so generous with younger artists as well as older artists. And Dave Grohl, as, as a fan who's never lost his essential fandom, that, you know, that there's something really beautiful about that and the way that that's always informed his music. He's always felt so much like the bridge between classic rock and modern rock, where he can kind of coexist as the person that Mick Jagger calls up if he wants to have someone on the song. Stevie Nicks calls up, Paul McCartney, like all of these, you know, big leagues rock stars and also a lot of modern artists want to want to work with him, want to celebrate him, look up to him that he's a fan of. He's just someone who's able to kind of be able to to exist in all kinds of facets of that world. Um, yeah, like the mayor of rock is, is a very good way of putting that, Brian. Well, you know, Brittany, that's actually such a great point because I think that one of the things I've noticed, and I've said this a million times, is is that as rock faded from being the sort of center of pop culture, one of the things, the really interesting things that happened is all these differences between kinds of rock that was that were once the kind of things that people would almost get into fistfights over, you know, that seems so important. The difference between Weezer and Pavement was like five brick walls between them. And, uh, you know, the difference between Billy Joel and Guns N' Roses or, or a million things like that. All of those categories collapsed. And I think Dave Grohl played a big part of that, actually. I think that his embrace of everything from Rush, and I'll always appreciate his him being like a big that he, the guy from Nirvana unabashedly was like, I love Rush. If Kurt Cobain had said, I love Rush in 1992, it would have felt so wrong. So I, I think that's his incredibly broad love of anything rock, anything with a guitar in it, really has done a lot to maybe keep it alive because I think in order for it to have any life, all those barriers had to come down. And I think he deserves credit for that. Yeah. And I never really thought about that before. I loved um, um he did that cover series over quarantine, I think on Instagram and Twitter or whatever, and he covered like peaches. He's just such like a broad music fan. It was just so much fun because it was like a out of the box song for Dave Grohl to to do, but like he's just such a very malleable, flexible kind of artist in that way. Let's talk about Kraftwerk, who I was frustrated for years by their inability to get in. For me, one of the big things about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is this idea of lineage and influence. And if you're Kraftwerk, who is by any measure one of the most influential acts ever to exist, uh, and you can't get in, there's something wrong with the process. And I, I think in this case, the prejudice is you know sort of against electronic music and a lack of understanding of exactly what these guys did. But it's, it's, it was maddening to me. And I, I was really hoping that Steve Ray Vaughan and Kraftwerk would get in the same year a few years ago because it, it spoke to like the, the uh, uh, sides of my musical tastes. And then somehow they, they could jam with, you know, John Mayer playing, uh, they could play like a, a an electronic blues with John Mayer playing the, the Steve Ray Vaughan parts. But alas, that did not happen. But Andy, what were you going to say? I mean, I think they faced many hurdles when trying to get in Hall of Fame. They have zero hit songs that the public knows that 
most Americans. They don't know their names. They don't know their faces. There's a lot happening there that would confound voters and would keep them out. I would wager strong money that neither of Kraftwerk had any idea that a Hall of Fame existed or that <laughs> this would mean anything to either Ralph or Florian is absolutely unthinkable. But like so huge in the history of hip hop. I mean, in terms of like specifically in the Hall of Fame, you know, they're German. You know, Germans don't get in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's a thing where there's, you know, they're so Euro and they always sounded so Euro. But it's like, it's wild. Like, I, I remember, you know, when Africa Bombata's Planet Rock was like such a huge song and you'd always hear it on the subway. And it, it was years later that, you know, I heard Kraftwerk and I was like, wait a minute, like that's where Planet Rock comes from? It was like so like mind blowing that, you know, Kraftwerk and hip hop were really made for each other, you know? They were incredibly influential in hip hop, and that was just sort of one side of their influence. When you look at all of techno, all of EDM, all this stuff, I mean, just wouldn't exist without them in some ways. So just incredibly overdue. And the thing about Kraftwerk's music is people might think it's difficult or hard to like or something. If you actually spend time with it, it's the most appealing music imaginable. It's, it's awesome. Everyone should be a Kraftwerk fan. I don't think it's a, a hard, a, like an abstruse or, or hard thing to get into. But anyway, I've, I've been personally aggrieved by this for years. I'm, I'm happy to see them get in. It's also nice to see Billy Preston get in one of the definitive sidemen in the history of rock and roll and, and uh, someone who, you know, little Richard wanted to jump on the phone with me when Billy Preston died to talk about how brilliant he was. Someone who, uh, you know, for talking about people who played with the Beatles, the only person to play with the Beatles for a whole album, probably single-handedly kept them together by their good behavior with him around for a while. Uh, you know, so that that's very nice to see. And he had a, he had a very a Dave Grohl-like role. You know, we're comparing Dave Grohl and LL together as ambassadors for their genre and mayors but you know people loved playing with billy preston and he lifted their spirits the famous george harrison solo tour of of 74 where the only time anybody had a good time at any point during the shows was when george harrison said billy preston and billy would take it away like for a solo bit you know but there's there's the great bootleg the very first afternoon billy preston was jamming with the beatles at the get back let it be sessions and they're playing Don't Let Me Down. It's the first time they've ever played with Billy Preston. And John Lennon says, my God, I said, take it. And he takes it. And he said, you're giving us a lift, Bill. And that's really like what he did for people. He, played, he gave them a lift very much the way Dave Grohl does. Brittany, any final thoughts on this class? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fun class. I mean, it's great to see how much they were able to kind of cover and able to kind of include in, in different ways. But yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see. I'm hoping that they are able to do a, a big final jam with a lot of them you know as many will will show up but that would be really awesome i know that some of them were talking about it in, in andy's interviews that came out yesterday but yeah i think it'll be really fun to kind of see a lot of them together on the stage and andy before we close maybe you can explain a little bit about how they're doing the the actual show differently this year yeah i spoke with john sykes and he said that it's not going to be live this year on hbo and the hbo version will be a combination of highlights from the event and documentary style things that they did last year at the virtual one so it'll be a very different experience for viewers at home than people that are actually in the audience in Cleveland in October. It's actually also interesting at a broader level because it's one of the first times that we're seeing some of the uh, COVID era innovations in these shows carry over to carry over the next year when they don't have as, as many restrictions just because it worked better. So that's really interesting. 
Anyway, that has been today's episode of Rolling Stone Music Now. Thanks to Brittany Spanos, Andy Green, and Rob Sheffield. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Do consider leaving us a nice review on iTunes. It is truly appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.